Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Climate Change Unfolding. I closed the last episode with the beautiful sounds of Hairy Lemon Island still in its pristine natural state. The trees have now been chopped on the mainland and many of the islands and all the wildlife that hasn't been killed by the tree felling that can move is now gathered into a few remaining spots on the biggest island. There's all sorts of politics going on with all that and to be honest it's mostly above my pay grade with different interest groups with very different priorities but the general gist of the situation now is all the wildlife is gathered on the main island and if we don't do something about it very very soon it's going to be either killed by the falling trees, killed for bushmeat or maybe even captured for legal wildlife trade on the black market. So some of the animals might try and swim for it and escape into the surrounding farmland and villages but without the habitat and with a heavily populated area surrounding the hairy lemon nothing's going to survive for long. So there's really important and urgent action needed and there's a plan being put together for it and I'm going to talk about it a little bit later and actually maybe the last sort of eight to ten minutes of this episode is all about that and the reforestation stuff. So please listen through to the end of this episode. We'll talk more on what needs to happen and and how we're going to go about it. It's really important. I'd really appreciate that. For those who listened into the last episode, I left the island and my home there with inspiration and some kind of steely resolve <laughs> that I was going to do something about the riverbanks on the remaining section of the Nile River. And it soon became obvious there was no better place to get answers than from a friend of mine, Jenny Farmer. So what I'm about to play for you is an interview with Jenny about the riverbanks. And before we dive into the interview, let me give you a bit of background on Jenny so you know who it is you're listening to. For the last five years since finishing her PhD, Jenny's been employed by the University of Aberdeen to run a sequence of research projects here in Uganda on land use and soil carbon. It's funded by the Environmental Research Council, the British government, and she's published a number of papers during that time to add to her PhD research. So she's a well-known scientist in her field. She owns a plot of land on the banks of the River Nile, and it's an experimenting and research ground for all sorts of initiatives to aid sustainability in her area. After some time living there and getting to know and understand the Ugandans in her area, Jenny and her partner Charlie set about trying to improve the local villagers' quality of life. She's using productive, long-term, sustainable approaches, which is awesome and (laughs) somehow novel. And uh, ultimately, Babugo Conservation Trust was born. And we talk a bit more about that in the discussion, so I'll skip that for now. She's also a founding director of the Uganda Carbon Bureau with her dad, who I previously spoke to. And Jenny and a couple of friends really started the Mountain Club of Uganda in 2012 after she read some articles of the old mountaineering club from Uganda in the 40s and the 50s and got it going again. And as the first female president of the club, helped build it into a thriving and adventurous outdoor community here. And actually through that, I've met all sorts of cool people and and made some good friends. So grateful to Jenny for that. Jenny also organises the Banff Mountain Film Festival here in Uganda. And she also lends a hand to all sorts of conservation initiatives all around the country. She's got a finger in all sorts of pies. What else to say about Jenny? (laughs) She lives a wild and wonderful life on on the banks of the River Nile. Jenny and her partner Charlie were featured in Escape to the Wild, which is a British TV documentary about people living out their dreams in exotic locations. Might actually be able to find that online, so I'll leave a link in the show notes to that. You can give it a bit of a taste of the place she lives. Aside from all that, Jenny's a total legend and pretty much universally loved by all in the community here, especially her little boy Rue, who's now two, runs about their little plot of land naked and generally charming and terrorizing anyone who passes through. Um, little legend. 
Let me get onto my conversation with Jenny Farmer. Okay, Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to have you on this podcast. I first got to know you properly when you bought a plot of land on the banks of the Nile River, but you've been in Uganda for quite a number of years before that. And as I understand it, you were high school in Uganda. You want to connect the dots for us and fill everyone in and tell me how you got from high school in Uganda to being a researcher living on the banks of the Nile. Uh, Sure. Um, My family first moved to Uganda in 1999 uh, from Swaziland. And I did my last couple of years of high school in Kampala. Then I went to university in the UK and studied environmental science and then came back to Uganda and was working on different environmental projects, mainly linked to forestry, doing some implementation and also a bit of research. And then I went to do my PhD at the University of Aberdeen. And I was based in Indonesia, looking at the impacts of land use change on peatland swamp forests, which was uh, pretty fun and muddy. (laughs) And then after that, uh, managed to get some funding to do research in wetlands in Uganda, based off of the interesting work that I'd done in Indonesia. And so that's when I then came back to Uganda and probably around about the time that I met you, I guess. That's where you arrived back and you your research in Uganda. What was that all about? <laughs> so again, it's nice and swampy and muddy. Um, I've been conducting research in the southwest of the country, looking at the impacts of land use change on the papyrus wetlands there, which have very peaty organic soils, and studying the drainage of those soils, the cultivation on those soils that is typically done for potato growth, and looking at the carbon losses and greenhouse gas dynamics in those wetland areas, but also with a people focus as well, because it's people who are draining the wetlands and cultivating them. So trying to understand the drivers behind that land use change, as well as its impact on the environment. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. Every single issue, you have to zoom out and there's so many different things affecting it, especially when humans concerned. So you've bought a plot of land on the Nile River. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's really interesting what Mm -hmm. you created there. In my opinion, you've got some really interesting approaches to it all. It's like you're kind of experimenting with all sorts of community engagement and sustainability stuff. But what brought you there in the first place and how did it turn into what it is now? Well, we were based in Kampala and um, doing lots of weekend trips to Ginger to kayak and decided that actually we'd quite like to have a plot of land down there to base ourselves from a bit more. So we bought the land probably about four years ago now. And when we first got it, it was very degraded. It was covered in an invasive plant called Lantana Camara. So we spent the first month or two just clearing out all of that Lantana and then realized that, oh, there's not actually much here. We're quite exposed now. And so we had one tree on the plot that was there and the lantana had just completely suffocated everything else. And our our plot has a slope to the river and then it goes back. It's quite rectangular in shape. And so that kind of bit of bank sloping down to the river was very degraded. There were erosion gullies on it because there was hardly any vegetation cover. People were grazing livestock and collecting firewood off of it. So then we started to put in measures to start to protect the riverbank from 
grazing firewood collection and also installing erosion prevention measures using uh, bamboo poles to hold the soil in place. And we've let the front of our plot with its steep slope to the bank actually regenerate naturally just by protecting it over the last four years. It's been amazing how quickly the indigenous vegetation primary succession has started to take over. And now you almost couldn't believe that there was no vegetation there. In fact, it's almost hiding the river view from the rest of our plot because it's regenerated so well. Yeah, that's actually amazing. I didn't realize that you only had one tree. I guess, you know, I slowly came to know it as we came there increasingly over the last few years. But to think what it is now and saying that it was almost completely clear cut because it it really looks like a proper little jungle. So it's amazing just with a little bit of support what nature's done to uh, rejuvenate itself. That's kind of encouraging in a way. Yeah, no, it is amazing. I mean, on the other side of the river, I guess probably about 50 kilometers away is Mabira Forest. And so we get a lot of birds coming over from there and then their droppings have seeds in them. So we get a lot of regeneration coming from that and also just I mean, Uganda is incredible for its climate and the growing conditions. So things come up so quickly there. Even trees that we have planted now, uh, you couldn't believe that they were only planted three years ago. They're massive. So it is a great place to allow that regeneration to happen naturally. Yeah, you build yourself a forest in just a few years, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then uh, on the rest of the plot, we have our home, which is a safari tent with a wooden deck. It's quite simple. We live a very much outdoor lifestyle with an outdoor long drop and cold water shower, outdoor kitchen. And then we've also at the back of the plot started developing a farm where we're trialing different crops and varieties and learning a lot about what it takes to actually grow successfully in this country what crops grow well what crops don't uh, the timings as well and also realizing the vulnerabilities that are linked to trying to live sustainably off of your land in a subsistence kind of way so being dependent on what you're growing luckily we have an alternative source of income because (laughs) some of our crops we've tried we haven't been very successful with realizing that everyone around us in our community is completely dependent on these soils and the weather for their food and their income. So it's been quite an amazing learning experience. And so with our farm, we're trying to develop locally appropriate, organic, sustainable approaches to farming. So you're not having to spend money on fertilizers or chemical inputs, trying to use natural uh, approaches to improve the quality of the soil and deal with pests. So good. Yeah. And and that vulnerability of the communities who are reliant on that is such an important point. It's really hard for us to fully empathize there because we can play these games of sustainability and then when it doesn't work, we have a fallback. But yeah, I think that's a really powerful and really important thing to acknowledge. Is that sort of where you've got the Babuga Conservation Organization? Is it from that that that's been born or how did that come to be? Yeah, so we set up Babugo Conservation Trust as a kind of community-based organization. Uh, My partner, Charlie, and I set it up with the help of some of the local guys who've been working with us. And the idea behind it is to try to address some of these issues of poverty in our community, of unsustainable land management practices, which we see along the riverbank and on our neighbor's lands. 
lots of issues of soil erosion, poor soil quality, and trying to come up with solutions that address those environmental and social issues hand in hand. Yeah, it's so good. I'm really a fan of Babuga Conservation Trust. And they have a website, which I'll leave in the show notes. It's good. I really appreciate that it's a like a very broad approach. It's not sort of like, I'm going to take this one problem and solve it in this very simplistic way that I've kind of dreamt up without engaging properly. And so it's definitely a, been a whole interactive process. And I, I really appreciate that. Having seen a lot of the way people do things here, I think that's awesome to see. So yeah, good stuff. And I'll leave a link in the show notes. But yeah, actually one thing on that, uh, last week I was talking about conserving the riverbank environment and it's just it's a really precious ecosystem and, and it's under a lot of pressure from various different drivers. But it's not hard at all to plant trees. The primary challenge is persuading the communities it's worth keeping them in the ground. There's just too many motivating forces to clear the trees and not enough motivation to leave them there. And there's this, I saw on the website and I've chatted to you briefly about it, the Bees and Trees Project which I really like the sound of. And I don't know if you could tell us a bit more, tell me a bit more about all that and fill me in on that project that's on your website. Yeah, so the Bees and Trees project is one of our initiatives to try to address environmental degradation, but in a way that provides income for the community. So along the rest of the riverbank around us, there's hardly any tree cover at all. It's basically bare riverbank that gets cultivated with maize when it's the time for cultivating maize and then when it rains huge amounts of soil wash off of the riverbank you can see very deep erosion gullies and so the idea with the trees and bees project is to do regeneration of the riverbank with tree planting uh, a mixture of different zones as you go up the bank starting with a strict indigenous conservation zone on the lower bit of the bank where it meets the river and then as you transition up to then have some trees specifically planted to provide good pollen for the bees and then along the top of the bank to have a selection of fruit trees as well which the community can come and harvest so that's the tree planting element of it but as you say keeping the trees in the ground is a tricky thing so then the idea is to have a beekeeping project with the communities so where they receive training and the equipment that they need, the beehives, and install those beehives along the riverbank and then provide them with access to market to sell their honey so that they are then getting revenues from the honey and understanding that actually it's the trees with the flowers and the pollen which are feeding their bees, which are then providing them with the honey, which is providing them with the income. So an approach that tries to improve the environmental condition on the riverbank with all those other co-benefits as well of it then provides habitat for birds and the biodiversity benefits but also in a way that provides the communities with an income because you can't just say don't go here don't do this there's a reason people are cultivating on the riverbank they need to feed their families they need to pay for school fees so the idea of having a source of income from the beekeeping linked to the tree planting hopefully addresses that yeah it's really awesome i love it who would be getting involved with the beekeeping and how much benefit would they get out of it like how does it work out for the beekeepers or the community people so we did some research into how people are using the riverbank and the resources in our area there's actually a forest reserve that is managed by the national forestry authority which is a pine forest which backs onto the riverbank but again there on the sloping bit of the bank leading up to that pine forest it is still cultivated and from that research we found people 
were quite disgruntled about not getting any benefits from that area. And we also found out that actually it's a lot of people cultivating on the riverbank who don't have land. So they're mainly based in the village trading centre rather than further out where people are cultivating more. So understanding the dynamics of people's use of the area and what they're happy with about it and the benefits or disbenefits they're getting from it has also helped us be more informed in planning for this project. So each beehive will provide about 800,000 shillings over a five-year period. So if we have a couple of beehives per household in this initial pilot phase of maybe about 30 households, then that will give them 1.6 million hopefully over a five-year period, obviously depending on how well the hives get established and as long as we don't get any infestations of moths and ants and things like that. 1.6 million is an amazing amount for a family that, that is right on the poverty line. It's definitely all about you, you've got to connect this income and incentivize the community and they'll do the protection for you. You know, everyone will be in on the whole thing and without that, just policing it is never going to keep those trees in the ground so that's i think that's really good and providing income for people these guys are really on the low end of the poverty and sort of income spectrum presumably yes they are there's huge levels of poverty there's high population growth a lot of families have at least eight children that they're trying to feed get through school provide basic health care for so one of the leaders of one of our women's groups, um, her name's Margaret. She's got eight children and I often encounter her cultivating in the pine forest nearby to us. She's become a, a good friend through the work that I've done with the women's groups and she would be one of the people to be involved in the Trees and Bees project directly as a beekeeper, which would then help provide her with some additional income to support her kids going to school because at the moment she can't afford to send them all to school so often what we do is if she's made some bunting or she's woven some mats then we'll buy them from her so that she can get some income to be able to pay for the kids school fees but having a beehive where she knows that she's getting this much revenue per year from that will really help someone like her directly and her children that money goes such a long way doesn't it I mean what what sort of difference might a few hundred thousand a year make to someone like Margaret well that could send two or three kids to school for the year locally you know there's so much stuff that with such a little amount of money that could could really help and something like this so much better than giving you know because one of the things that comes naturally when you hear about people right on the poverty edge and right struggling with all these different things is to just pay directly to is a bit of a sympathy gesture but obviously something like this is just way better for so many different reasons you know we've already talked we've talked a lot about the secondary benefits but really important that you're creating a way for them to generate the income themselves rather than just a handout yeah definitely and it maintains people's pride Uh, they feel more confident and empowered uh, especially if you're a single mum or a mum at home on her own most of the time looking after all the kids. That's what we do anyway with our bunting and our mats. We never give out handouts of cash just like that. There's always at least something that people give us in return so that they feel, okay, I'm not just getting this for free. I can maintain my pride and not living off handouts the whole time. Absolutely, yeah. So 
the idea is to start with a pilot project, which we open up to to anybody who wants to join, but also trying to target with our local chairman and elders, those households who do need that extra support to become involved. And then if we have a successful pilot, and I'm sure we will learn a lot from it as to what works and what doesn't work, then the idea would be to scale that up on a much bigger scale uh, further downstream covering more of the riverbank. So trying to keep it a manageable small project to begin with, really get to learn what works and what doesn't work and then scale that up. So good. Yeah, there's so many different parts about this project that I like because, you know, it's, it's capturing all those different areas and, and bees are really important. Uh, yeah, they are. They're very important. And actually, I mean, around the world, people are noticing that bee populations are decreasing, but they're so crucial for crop pollination and everything else. So it links in to other landscape characteristics as well for example as people are trying to grow their crops nearby and and there's uh, lots of different trees which you can plant which are good for pollen for the bees but which also have other co-benefits for the community as well add uh, trees which add nitrogen to the soil uh, caliandra is one of those which we're trialing on our farm at the moment and it grows very quickly very well so that's a very good one to put into the ground to begin with um, as some of the slower trees are coming up, you, you have the caliandra growing quicker, adding nitrogen, um, provides good fodder as well for goats and cows. So, yeah, there's lots of interesting kind of co-benefits from this project. If you have a section of healthy riverbank, then it's not washing all of the soil from the surrounding farmland. And there's all sorts of benefits for the for the immediate close farmland as well, right? Yeah. And then also for the river, if Every time it rains at the moment, the river just goes muddy brown with all the soil that's flooding into it. So we have a lot of fishermen in our community. Fish stocks are decreasing in the river. So if you can reduce that runoff of soil going into the river, the runoff of pesticides and fertilizers as well, which is something else we're trying to address, then you'll also improve the the quality of the river and the water, which people use for fishing, bathing, everything else. So um yeah so hopefully lots of co-benefit yeah it's great and then obviously this well this podcast called climate change unfolding and obviously the the trees are going to have some significant carbon capture presumably and then also if you regenerate soil and a healthy soil versus a, a leached and washed out soil as i understand it at least from my relative sort of novice understanding is that there'll be significant carbon capture in the soil as well is that right yeah so Ideally, there would be a good amount of carbon sequestered through this project. It obviously depends on the success of the tree planting, but you can anticipate perhaps a 20% fail rate or something like that. So be conservative with estimates on the carbon sequestration. But yes, every tree will be sequestering carbon and then the soil as well. Hopefully with time, we can improve the soil quality so that you've got a good uh, organic layer of soil there rather than at the moment what we're left with is you know in some places it's almost washed down out just to the rocky layer you've lost almost that entire soil layer there hopefully will be those kind of benefits as well but the riverbanks are are steep the top like the general land is pretty flat and then you've got maybe like 10 15 meters is it something like that a really steep riverbank like 60 degrees or something like that and that just washes straight in the river turns brown now it never used to but the river turns brown whenever we got rain because of all the deforestation along the riverbank so yeah so many different things so back to the carbon thing like 
thinking about it is absorbing carbon. Does it provide a, a legitimate carbon offset then? You know, I know there's, it's not necessarily stamped certified project, but I guess you've got like the four things that you normally do as reading the other day. Is it quantifiable? Does it provide additionality, leakage? You know, is it permanent? Those sort of things. Does it actually provide legitimate carbon offset? Um, yeah, so hopefully we can quantify you know, we know what we're planting. We're keeping an eye on things. In particular, with this pilot project, that will be something that we're looking at very strongly. We've already planned how many trees we'll be planting in which locations on the the riverbank that we're going to do the pilot on. So leakage is um, is where you prevent this degrading activity, for example, of deforestation in an area because you're going to turn it into a tree planting project or a a conservation project and people then will just shift their degrading behavior elsewhere and go and cut trees down elsewhere so when we talk about leakage we talk about the concerns of well actually you've not solved the problem you've just shifted it to somewhere else hopefully the approach that we're taking of this full community engagement and all the co-benefits that this project will provide will hopefully mean that there is no leakage because the drivers of the land use change are being addressed. So the reasons for people cultivating on the bank needing that income are now being addressed by having the honey to sell and also then having the co-benefits of a more sustainable source of firewood and things like that. One of the other cornerstones is additionality. So additionality is you have to prove that that carbon finance is really driven this activity to happen so we couldn't have done it without carbon finance so at the moment we don't have any funding for this project well we have a little bit of funding that we're trying to save but in terms of being able to do the full pilot and then scale it up we definitely don't so the option of carbon finance is quite appealing because it would then give us enough money to be able to implement the project and scale it Mm -hmm. so basically the project can't happen without that investment from the carbon finance perspective yeah i understand okay interesting interesting and presumably just talking about all of these other co-benefits sorry i'm especially interested in the bees and trees thing because i think it's awesome once it's forest established it can also provide sustainable amount of firewood right so so like if you've got a forest you can take a few sticks out each day and without the the forest becoming depleted and eventually being cleared so that would be one of the sort of possible solutions to this ongoing problem of chopping trees down and slowly eating into a forest, right? Yes, definitely. Hopefully because the community would be so embedded and engaged in the project, understanding the need to keep those trees there and maintain their beehives and everything else, that they would be the ones who monitor that firewood collection and make sure that it doesn't tip beyond a sustainable level. We shouldn't forget also the significant impact of that immediate riverbank on the whole ecosystem. It's a really, as I understand it, a very precious part because you've got bird life, especially critical for things like kingfishers and the, and the water birds. Plus you've got the fish and the water animals and, the, you know, like the otters and whatever else. They all interact very heavily along that immediate riverbank, don't they? Yes, they do. And actually, we've spotted some amazing wildlife on our bit of riverbank. There's pangolin, there's genets, and it's amazing how they're managing to hold on, even though there's hardly anywhere left for them to really live and thrive. Um, So this is actually almost a kind of point where if we don't 
do something soon, then we will have lost a lot of those species, and we already have, that would naturally be found there, especially in terms of the kind of bigger mammals or reptiles. So trying to get this project going now, as it stands on our bit of the river, on our side of the river, our plot is one of the only bits, really, that has any tree cover on it now. So we're this kind of last refuge for bits of wildlife. It's amazing the number of birds that we get in our garden and on our land there in the trees compared to even when we first got the plot. And then also as soon as you step out of our boundary into the neighbouring farmland and then into that pine forest that I mentioned, there's almost no bird song at all. So it is really important to try to get this type of activity going on the riverbank. Also in terms of Uganda's tree diversity. So as we see the protected forest areas in Uganda, the last remaining pockets of intact indigenous forest being heavily exploited for firewood and timber, you start to really lose that seed bank and your kind of cultural identity because a lot of Ugandans connect with trees in different ways for making boats. Uh, The traditional cloth, the bark cloth comes from a tree So there's a lot of things that we're potentially losing in terms of the biodiversity, both uh, flora and fauna, which we are kind of at a point where if we don't start doing something now, then it might all be gone forever. Wow. We've got to make this happen, Jenny. What do do we need to do? (laughs) What do we need to do to make this happen? What's holding it back at the moment? Um, At the moment, it's just having enough money to be able to simultaneously set up the tree planting bit of the project and the beekeeping because you can't have one without the other. So we've identified a local organization that provides beekeeping training and the equipment and access to market, which is a crucial thing. We need to be able to sell the honey to make sure that this all works. And so they have their costs for doing that training and buying the equipment and everything. And then there's also the costs of getting the tree seedlings. We want good quality seedlings, not ones which are just going to get planted and die. And then also the handholding with Babuga Conservation Trust and the community. Um, We'll need some funding to facilitate people's time to do that as we transition from working all together fully at the beginning to be able to hand over the entire project to the community in one or two years time and let it sustain itself. Right. Okay. So money. Let me let me think yeah. on that. How much do we need? What do we need to get to, to get this project off the ground? Well, for this pilot, we're looking at about $4,000 to be able to set up a good pilot, make sure that they've got good quality training and that we've got the good quality seedlings. And then after that, we would look to try and apply for a bigger pot of money somewhere um, to scale it up based on the lessons learned. Yeah, sure. Once you've got a pilot and a good proof of concept, then grants and government and, you know, all sorts of other major organizations probably a lot easier to come by. Right. So we just need to get this first one (laughs) off the ground. I think it's absolutely awesome, Jenny. And I think I'm really excited about it and I really want to try and help you make this happen. So I'm going to have a think as soon as we finish recording here, I'm going to get a brainstorming out and I'm going to work out, see if we can make a plan to get this money and get this project off, off the ground because I love it. It's so many different aspects to it. I think it's a really well thought out project and I'm excited. I want to be a part of it and I want to, I'd love to see it happen. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, the other thing that we're also looking for is any volunteers or interns who want to get involved with the work that we're doing. 
we have a whole load of things we're doing in the community. We've got the Riverbank Reading Room, which is a free public library that we provide access to all our community members to. We have women's literacy classes in there. We have after school homework clubs. We run sustainable agriculture courses. And then, of course, there's a Trees and Bees project. Uh, We work with women in their women's groups in our community, developing products for market. So we're always looking for people to come and help that. So if people are interested to help, but they don't have any money, that's not a problem. They can still get involved in other ways. So you can contact us through the contact links on the website. Great. I'll add all the links to Babuga Conservation Trust and to Bees and Trees project. I'll leave it on my website. So many things you mentioned there we haven't even talked about. I've got so honed in on this Bees and Trees because I'm excited about it, but we'll have to do it on another episode because Jenny and Charlie both do amazing things for the community there. And there's those things that, that you just mentioned about you do confetti and and bunting yeah we have biodegradable confetti that the ladies make we have handwoven bunting uh, which is used for decorations at weddings and parties uh, i mentioned earlier the women who are the potters so we're working with them to standardize nice plant pots that they make and looking into other pottery options and making baskets lots of things trying to be a bit different though compared to the mainstream normal uh, crafts that you get as I understand it, it's a women's cooperative where they get together, they create these things, and then you're facilitating the sale of them to help them generate income as an extra source. Because women, especially within these real rural communities, they there's a lot of pressure on them, and uh, and it's, so it's really important and and great that you they get the support from someone like yourself. And so actually, if anyone's listening and wants to check that out, you you totally sell this. There's the bunting, the the pots the confetti all of that stuff we have a shop on etsy called uganda made which is where we sell the bunting from but again we're looking for people to help us access different markets and places where we could try and sell this and to scale up our production as well and other ideas creative ideas of what the ladies could be making so anybody with any ideas feel free to share them with us <laughs> yeah so good yeah we've got some of the the bunting is actually really awesome i love the sort of rustic and uh, sort of hand weave bunting it's amazing uh, we've got some in the cut in our office actually strung above where the uh, office manager sits <laughs> love it <laughs> thanks for the support <laughs> yeah, yeah no problem my pleasure anyway i'm gonna see what i can do about this bees and trees i'm well excited Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me. Is there anything else you want to throw in the mix? Last message before we wrap that up, because we've been going a while. Um, Thanks for the chat. Thanks for your interest in what we're doing. It's exciting to have somebody else equally as excited about it. And it's good motivation. And it's great to be able to share what we're doing with everybody else who's listening. So thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, I haven't even mentioned, by the way, that you're literally about to pop nine months pregnant. When, When is it you're due? Like within the next few days. Sometime. Today. 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 <laughs> yes, yeah, what a trooper for conservation and sustainability. Here she is on a Skype call chatting to me and answering my questions, and she's due today, nine months pregnant. Well, best of luck with that, Jenny. You're a total legend. <laughs> Thanks so Thank much you. for the chat. <laughs> after the conversation with Jenny, after losing my home on the Hairy Lemon, and after all these developments have happened in the last week or so with the wildlife on the Hairy Lemon, I really feel like the time has come for me to st- 
stop only just talking about conservation and to turn into me doing something about conservation and for my talking about climate change to turn into real action on climate change. Together with a number of people who absolutely know more about these issues than I do and following their expert advice, we've put together a really carefully considered plan of action. Uh, we have a private team with a high level of experience to relocate the uh, remaining animals, experienced trappers. We have a national park uh, lined up to release the wildlife into where they'll be safe and protected and a plan for how to implement the whole process. For the trees and the habitat creation, since my conversation with Jenny that you just listened to, we've ironed out the details and have actually extended the scope to cover a few sections of the river that have been affected either by hydro previously or by other human pressures. We plan to plant more trees than every one of the ones being chopped on the Hairy Lemon Island and to engage communities and create income for the people who really need it in a sustainable, long-term, beneficial way. I really feel like it's the right thing to do and I really feel like it's time for me to act. I'm going to put a significant chunk of my own money into this and Harry Lemon also feel very passionately about all of this and have agreed to do the same. And we just launched a crowdfund to make it easy for other people also keen to do the same. So as a goodwill and an, as an encouragement or an inspiration, Harry Lemon's promised to match the first £400 donated by other people. That together with their money and the money donated the first 800 pounds will ensure as much of the wildlife from the hairy lemon as possible gets properly caught and relocated to somewhere safe rather than killed for bush meat or possibly even sold on dubious illegal wildlife black market after we've covered that the following 800 pounds of donations i'll match with 800 pounds of my own money and that'll go towards helping to reforest large sections of the remaining river as well as generating income for the impoverished families who live alongside so for every little bit of money donated, me or the Harry Lemon's going to match it. So really hope that that's going to help people get involved and know that their money's really going a long way to do something good. Okay, so I'll openly admit that I'm emotional and kind of upset about all this. And it's hard losing a home. It's hard seeing such an amazing natural habitat destroyed by human development. It's hard seeing everyone trying to grab their little piece of the island and it's hard to see the wildlife which is an innocent party to all this suffer the consequence it's also sad and disruptive and it's easy for that to get me down but doing something constructive it feels good you know it's easy when something like this happens just to wallow or to get angry or to switch off and you know switch on a film and try and forget about the world but but i don't like that you know it just makes me feel worse it doesn't it feels like the negative forces of the world are winning and you know, we have nothing but gloomy future ahead of us, you know, with nothing positive happen. So instead of switching off, we engage, we act, we channel that energy into making something good happen. You know, it helps the grieving process and it aids recovery, you know, and, and obviously it helps all round to make our tiny little corner of the world a slightly better place. So I really think that's a, a productive way of coming at all this. And you know, just at the time when we feel most hopeless, getting active, having the community come together and make good things happen also helps give us all a little bit more hope in humanity right when we need it. So if you can spare a little bit of money, it would be massively appreciated. Get involved, be a part of this. The animals, the wildlife, the ecologists area is going to appreciate it too. The crowdfunding page is online 
And it's in the show notes. It's on my website, climatechangeunfolding.com slash episode nine, the number nine. If you can't spare any money, a share on social media comes for free. And that's going to help the word get out to people who can. So I'd also appreciate that as well. We can send this viral. This project can totally get off the ground. And that would just be amazing. I'd really love to see that happen. I promise to finish each episode with a few little snippets from the climate change unfolding community, from you guys, basically. And even though I've got loads of things that I feel is interesting, I just couldn't bring myself to do it at the end of the last episode. thought just leaving the sounds of the hairy lemon ringing in your ears would be a good way to close it off. And I've had so many messages recently, particularly about that last episode, people who've been touched by the place and reached out. And I'm very grateful to all those guys who've been in touch. And... I've actually gathering a list of things I want to mention in the community section at some point, but a lot of these episodes are getting so long already that I'm really struggling to get it. So I think I'm actually just going to do a separate episode just on a whole collection of random bits. So thanks for all of the stuff that you've been sending me. It's really helped my education as well, having all that input. For now, for this climate change unfolding community section, I wanted to share a quote that was sent to me immediately after the last episode from Sarah Stanley Johansson, who's a climate and development consultant from the UK. She listened to the last episode about the hairy lemon and sent me the following, which she heard originally from the founder of North Face and has stuck with her. And it really resonates with my current situation and with the hairy lemon and river here. So, quote, You have to really know something to love it, and you have to love it to be passionate about conserving it. End quote. Very simple but pretty much on point it hits very closely was what I was talking about at the end of the last episode um, about the little pockets of paradise that we know and wanting to conserve that and it sort of sums up that in a much more concise way than I did Um, and it sums up where I'm at at the moment so I'm also not alone in wanting to conserve this river and the natural environment here and and that's because I'm not alone in knowing and loving this place I know I'm not the only one who's connected with the stretch of river and the islands and the wildlife and the hairy lemon Thousands of people come here for the white water and they leave talking about the amazing wildlife, the monkeys swinging from the trees and how amazing the Ugandans are, particularly the children who line the riverbanks and despite having so little, always smiling, full of life and energy. Well then, here's a chance for all of us to pay back just a little bit for all those special memories and experiences that we've been given over the years, both to the wildlife and to the local communities with these projects of Jenny's. Let's make this happen Let's make it happen. This is Sam Ward, Climate Change Unfolding, signing off for now. Thanks for listening.